Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Well, the month of Ramadan has come to an end. Uh, to uh, my fellow Muslims, hope you had a wonderful and a blessed Eid al-Futr, translated the holiday of the feast. And uh, it was a tough month this year, and, and uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the fast, uh, thank God, uh, went well for myself and my family. Um, but uh, again, a lot going on. Uh, busy, uh, uh, as all of you are, uh, more than ever before. And uh, sort of had to work the daily fast from dawn to sunset uh, around that. But, uh, you know, it was a time of atonement. It was a time of, ref- time of reflection, prayer. And um, glad that we're on to the next month in our uh, lunar calendar. But uh, again, to my fellow Muslims, hope you had a, a blessed uh, holiday and a blessed month of Ramadan with you and your family and all your loved ones. Uh, you know, I was uh, looking at uh, CNN, uh, which I try not to do too much of, but uh, looked at CNN this week, and they had a piece about the holidays. And, you know, we always talk about this every year, which is, you know, can Muslims agree on a holiday? And and to many of you, you may find that to be something very odd, um, since you think the holidays are sort of uh, fixed in the calendar. Well, since there's a lunar calendar, and since their tradition back in the seventh century was to, sixth and seventh century, was to basically look for the moon and see if it's up as to when the new moon starts, the, the holidays were always determined based on when you saw and this new moon sighting occurred. So our holiday was the first day of the next month. Now, even with all the technology, and now it's clear some Muslim countries have nailed it down. Um, Turkey and uh, Indonesia, I think, and a few others have locked it in. Now, others who are driven to follow the Saudi the Saudi leadership will wait for them to determine it, and they do not use science, surprise, surprise, but rather wait until somebody sees it. And this debate, this debate about science versus the written literalist, literalist interpretation of orthodoxy goes to the core of every faith, whether it's Orthodox Judaism and Orthodox Christianity or whatever it might be. But I will tell you that it is one thing to respect tradition, to understand that there is a place for science, and to basically not give preference to uh, avoiding and ignoring science and say somehow this is the right thing. And there's then the, the debate about whether the reality is is that uh, we must then allow sixth century traditions to dominate what scientific interpretation is. And there's no doubt that we know exactly the location of the moon over the next two, three, six, 12 months. Now it might get more inaccurate as you get into 14, 16 months. But at the end of the day, the fact that this debate exists should tell you, and, and by the way, You've got still localities in America where on one side of the town, holiday was celebrated on 
Monday, May 1st, I'm sorry, on Sunday, May 1st, and on Monday, May 2nd, and other parts of the same town. Some that say they're following the Saudi tradition and the Saudi leadership because of funding and other connections to the royal kingdom, the Saudi kingdom. But I think I've always felt that this this example runs to the core of the dysfunction that exists in the Muslim communities around the world because you've got pressures from Petro kingdoms from Petro Islam, you've got pressures from those who refuse to accept modernity and science, and you've got pressures from tribalism and other aspects of communities. And all of these prevent reform. All of these are pathognomonic, as we say in medicine, pathologies that define the disease. And we're reminded at the end of every year at the end of every month of Ramadan, every year that we have, that we've got divisions. Even the Islamists in Turkey, the Erdoganistas, <laughs> are already accepting science because those are the neo-Islamists, those that believe in political Islam, but yet in a neo-Islamist kind of way have accepted that they will put a veneer of modernity. And, you know, further, as as we celebrate our holiday, we're reminded we just had one of the confluence or as described, sort of a, a synchronicity of events with Passover, with Easter and Ramadan happening at the same time. It doesn't happen too often. Uh, I think it may not happen next year. It happens usually when these synchronous events happen. It's usually just at three, two or three years, and then they fall off cycle. We saw it many years ago when Yom Kippur and our holiday uh, overlapped. We see it uh, uh, now and again because the Muslim lunar calendar is does not have a correction similar to the uh, Jewish lunar calendar, which adds a, a 13th month every four years. Uh, but bottom line is, is during this, you would hope that we would have found some attention to peace and um, cooperation and understanding and respect, especially from the Muslim community. Al Jazeera continues to yet praise terrorism, to praise radical Palestinian Islamists, and its anchor, as Hani Hani Garaba uh, talked about uh, um, recently, its anchor uh, Mansour. Um, reported on a recent incident. And, and you know, it's not just this. It, there were multiple incidents that happened in the past few weeks that I, as an, as an American Muslim, am chagrined that so many Muslim organizations living in the lap of freedom, in the lap of peace here in America and in the West, could not get themselves to condemn. You saw a desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque where, where hoodlums go in and trash the place. You saw terror attacks on innocent civilians in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere by Palestinian radicals and Islamists with media platforms like Al Jazeera basically endorsing it. A top anchor, as reported by the Investigative Project on Terrorism, a top anchor of Qatar's Al Jazeera network 
said that the cause of the attacks were celebrations and praise. The martyrdom of the attacker of Tel Aviv operation, the Palestinian computer expert, the son of the Janine camp, Ra'ed Hazim, after he made the Israelis taste humiliation, he said, this is on Al Jazeera's air with sometimes 40 to 60 million viewers. They spent the dark night of terror imprisoned in their homes while an entire army of thousands of Israeli soldiers pursued him for nine hours. He freely wandered until he reached Jaffa. The Al Jazeera host Ahmed Mansour wrote on April 8, he clashed with an Israeli force in Jaffa and was martyred. May God have mercy on him. As I would say, astaghfirullah. He's a terrorist. Not have mercy on a terrorist. These attacks that are unprovoked, that are not part of war, but asynchronous warfare against innocent civilians. Mansour was writing about Hazim that killed three people and wounded 11 others on Tel Aviv's popular Dizengoff Street. His post included two pictures of Hazim, one showing him cradling a baby and the other showing him hosting, hoisting a rifle. Mansour, by the way, has 1.2 million Twitter followers and he cheered another attack 11 days earlier. As I mentioned before, there have been other attacks in Israel during this time of Passover and Ramadan, you'd think they'd be teaching peace. No. They actually said during this time of Ramadan was a time of not only peace, but a time of jihad. Yes, that's... You wonder why Muslims are continually radicalized and, and, and what is happening. It is absurd. It is absurd that we are not seeing more peace and less and more repudiations of this kind of radical radicalization. And then you look further. Ilhan Omar was praised by the liberal media when she, and again, I'm trying to show what lack of interfaith cooperation is coming from our Muslims that are the most vocal. Noah Berlatsky writes in the NBC opinion section, Ilhan Omar's right about the Christian singing on a plane video. And there was a lot. This went viral because she posted a, a link to an individual, I think from the religious group that had begun singing on a plane. And uh, she basically said, what would the reaction have been if this was Muslims? And initially people said, oh, she's overreacting and she got a lot of pushback. And then you started to have people say, well, you know what? She has a point. Because Muslims, if they started to recite the Quran and, and uh, do any type of religious type of musicality, then that would have brought condemnation. And I spoke out against the imams that had prayed at the gate in 2007 and U.S. Airways then took them off the flight, and they sued. And I said, how tone deaf could they be? How absurd could they be that they would not have even known that the reaction would have been one of fear, one of, of concern as they entered just six years after 9-11, one of the most tenuous clinics of anxiety and assumed they could somehow openly recite Quranic verse and pray at the gate, which is not something that's ex that hardly anybody has ever seen in the West. 
Might happen in Saudi airports, might happen in Qatari airports, but certainly not in the West too frequently. But then they sued. And I talked about how these imams had a tradition, had a significantly hypocritical approach where they might have condemned terrorism here or there, but they certainly didn't do things to help us with reform. Many of them hailed from the Phoenix area. And now, fast forward 13, 14 years later, Ilhan Omar seems to be making the same comments that somehow this would have been perceived differently if it was Muslims versus the religious sort of unorthodox Christians that were singing. The pastor appeared to have been doing charity and evangelical work near the Ukrainian border. And it wasn't clear if the flight was part of that, but the singers then started to ask fellow passengers for permission or whether uh, um, to, to continue to sing. And it was sort of an impromptu concert on board the airplane. And the reaction was mixed. But my one message to Omar, again, is that here you have somebody who just came back a few weeks earlier. I was talking about her trip to Pakistan with meeting with Imran Khan, an, an Islamist, kleptocratic, and also peri-theocratic type of leader who appeased folks like the Taliban and others, and she wanted to make good with him as he was ousted from his government. She also did similar meetings with Erdogan in Istanbul. And his founders have only able to criticize the Saudis, but not really any Islamist movement like the Brotherhood, the Qataris, the Turks, or the Islamists of the Jamaat Islamiyah in Pakistan. So she couldn't make that criticism, but seems to be pretty easily to make criticism of a benign group of happy Christians that are singing on an airplane. And again, the criticism here is that for Muslims who have denied any responsibility in speaking out about the reforms, the core causes, the root causes of radical Islam, I think it takes a lot of gumption to then start giving America lectures on what type of things midair, mid-flight should give them visceral reactions and which ones shouldn't. Is it fair? No, not necessarily. It's been quite a bit of time since 9-11, but there's also been a litany of terror attacks that continue, jihadis that continue to attack, and Islamist movements that continue to grow. So uh, I think Americans get uh, a pass on reacting one way to benign Christian singers on an airplane going to try to help the Ukrainians versus Muslims who might, wrong or right, invoke some fear if they started chanting religious songs on flight in the setting of a very minimally palpable movement of uh, American Muslims reforming and joining our Muslim reform movement to marginalize Islamist movements and radicalism. <laughs> Now,
Next, I want to talk about this recent call by the Biden administration to say that they want to start a platform monitoring mechanism called, wait for it, the Disinformation Governance Board. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm with everybody that basically called that out as a big brother, uh, sort of Orwellian name for a board that, to think that, some, that an American government, a, a democratic U.S. government based with the history that we have and the First Amendment protections that we have would think that it would be appropriate for the government to put into place a disinformation governance board. And as some have said, it really uh, smacks of something that uh, President Obama had talked about. And who knows if he's not simply whispering this into the ear of the Biden administration and it's not something that he is going to be overseeing. Now, you could go on forever to talk about how this is secondary to the control of speech at the through the COVID pandemic and the control of uh, information and, and criticism about vaccines and about lockdowns and a lot of the areas as we still have yet to really free up completely back to normal in the areas of what we can and cannot discuss publicly. But I've always try to impart on you the the experience that I have as a Muslim fighting against Islamists. And I can tell you this is even beyond Orwellian. This is straight out. And, you know, I've talked to you before about the red-green axis and how the far, far left becomes authoritarian, similar to the way that the Islamists are authoritarian. Uh, they might not share uh, a, a gumption for wanting to put into place Islamic law, Sharia, as the socialists want to basically control economics and and are more godless. But the bottom line is whether one's doing it in the name of God or Allah, as they would say, and the other's doing it in the name of far-left, autocratic, secularist socialism, the bottom line is, is they work together from Venezuela and Iran and the UN to the AOCs and uh, Ilhan Omars of our U.S. Congress. So... It's not a surprise. You look at the Disinformation Governance Board. Go to each of the Islamic majority, the Islamist governances, the monarchs, the autocrats of the Middle East. The Saudis had the Mutawain, which are the police that would go in and make sure that people are following the Islamic rules and women are wearing, um, you know, uh, the, the niqabs and and uh, dress that was demanded and, and mandated by the government to, to go down to their feet and cover their heads and their hair and their faces. And if not, they would get struck by sticks. Same thing in Iran. Same thing in Pakistan as people were, were, were killed for honor killings and tortured with minimal punishments from the government as blasphemy laws are part of their governance. And... They had a, a culture of disinformation governance that basically would, would punish fellow relatives that would not honor their communities, honor their families. And thus you saw uh, anti, um, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and anti-Muslims for those who questioned the governing bodies, the regimes done in the name of disinformation governance. How many times when I went and, and the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, we would go 
we went to Saudi Arabia a few times and said, how could you put somebody in jail for criticizing Islam? We just saw Rafe Bedawi released after 10 years of imprisonment because he liked a Christian Facebook page, because he left Islam. But it was really about his free speech. And they say that, oh, he can he can leave Islam, but he just can't say it publicly because that would be treason, that would erode the national cohesion. So this is the slippery slope that is disinformation boards. And I can tell you, the Muslim reformers that are in our Muslim reform movement have experienced this every day in our communities, even here in America, where if you are a woman that wants to express herself in her own interpretations of the Quran and and her marital uh, um, principles and other things, she is marginalized and often abused in the name of religion. And if we're going to fight that, we have to have the public square to do so, to do so about our universal declaration of human rights and the rights that we find that are inalienable, that are part of our constitution, the right to free speech, the right to criticize not only our governments, but our communities, our societies, our parents, our religious leaders. And I'll remind you, Ilhan Omar was trying to put a position just like this governance board at the State Department, where they would have a seat of Islamophobia, uh, somebody that would that would be charged with making sure that Islamophobia was not permitted. And remember, Islamophobia is a thought crime. It's not about bigotry against Muslims. Otherwise, they would have said it was to fight bigotry against Muslims. But no, just like the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, they said that the position they want to put at the State Department was about combating Islamophobia. So ladies and gentlemen, you're seeing this every other week. Omar's bill to combat Islamophobia and put in a position that was Orwellian, that was basically like a caliphate position in our government that was endorsed by the Biden administration and by the ADL and the Democratic Party and the left. And now with Elon Musk buying Twitter, they're concerned that it might be a free a, a, a free for all and actually a fair playing field. That's free speech is messy, ladies and gentlemen. I'm much more willing to take the risk of messy free speech than allow anybody, anybody, let alone folks in the U.S. government, to decide what is and what is not correct speech or tolerated speech. Because I can tell you, as a Muslim, we know of thousands of Muslims tortured, jailed, murdered, slaughtered, because they had an interpretation of Islam that didn't fit the disinformation governance board of the Saudi government, of the Pakistani government, of the Turkish government. This is an un-American move by the Biden administration. And how many are we going to see? How many more attempts are we going to see to try to install un-American, un-American controllers of free speech and who we are? It must stop. And last this week, I want to talk briefly about what's happening in Sweden. You know, Europe has always been sort of that signal of what 
is probably coming to the United States when it comes to uh, basically integration issues, assimilation, ideological reform, terrorism, um, and radicalization of Muslims. And just last week, the last two weeks, we've seen riots, we've seen districts on fire, and continued uptick in temperature, if you will, as uh, riots have happened from Muslim populations. Why? Because one of the legislators had the temerity to burn the Quran. Now, I would never defend that. I think very bad things in history have started with the burning of Scripture. It's a slippery slope. But it's one thing to burn a book, and it's another to burn down and destroy neighborhoods and commit acts of terrorism. In Stockholm, reporters have said that Sweden, quote, failed to integrate the vast numbers of immigrants and it has taken in over the past two decades. It It led to parallel societies and gang violence, according to a recent report from Europe. Prime Minister Magdalena Anderson said few days ago that she launched a series of initiatives to combat organized crime. Many Swedes were shocked after violent riots left more than 100 police injured. The violence erupted after a Swedish-Danish politician burned the Koran at a rally and sought to hold more in several immigrant-dominated neighborhoods. Prime Minister Anderson blamed the criminals and said both Islamism and right-wing extremism had been allowed to fester in Sweden in unusually frank and self-critical comments. Segregation has been allowed to go so far that we have parallel societies in Sweden. We live in the same country, but in completely different realities. And if you look at some of the data, the number of people born abroad has doubled in the last two decades to two million or a fifth of the population of Sweden. Anderson's Social Democrats have been in power for 28 of the last 40 years, including the last eight. So she talked about various programs of integration, and she's talked about making sure that the first thing they do is learn the Swedish language and other aspects of assimilation. Now, what's interesting, and the reason I I think this is so important for all of you to hear, is this is not a conservative. Anderson's a leftist, environmentalist, socialist, social democrat party activist, and yet they're coming to terms with talking about parallel societies. Imagine with the influx at our border, if the Democratic Party were to actually talk about parallel societies and their lack of integration. You'd realize at that point, if you actually heard that coming from the Democratic Party, the Biden administration or others that have basically allowed millions to come in in the last year, you'd realize that, wow, there must be some real earth-shattering changes happening on the streets. So our work will eventually when it comes to the assimilation of Western values and freedom and liberty and the, the, the preeminence of the individual rights over that of collectivism and Islamist theocratic apologetics for their interpretation, as long as that happens, the reality is, is look to Europe. The left is coming to terms with the problems of Islamism. 
in France, Macron, no harsh, no far-right conservative, just won elections. And the tone that he struck in that elections now, the Al Jazeera's of the world claim that it was a battle between a little Islamophobia and a lot of Islamophobia. Yeah, whatever. They don't want to own up to the fact that Islamism is incompatible with Western society and it must be defeated. It must be reformed against for real assimilation to happen. But Al Jazeera is the Islamist platform, so they're going to do everything possible to demonize the West to demonize their countries. And don't don't be mistaken. You know, we saw this week Erdogan went and met with King, uh, I'm sorry, Crown Prince Salman. And oh, you saw all these comments about how finally Islamism is changing and the, the Erdogan Islamist regime is probably moderating itself now after the Abraham Accords. Uh, no, I don't think so. Erdogan is an opportunist. He had simply economic reasons as his economy is faltering to do what he did internally. Multiple reports this week talk about how much more extreme the Erdogan regime is becoming as far as women's rights, free speech, and the advancement of Islamist doctrine across the country at the expense of anybody that may protest. But what he does abroad is very self-interested very much as he tries to build his neo-caliphate with his neo-Ottoman empire that he wants to rebuild. That's the Islamist of Erdogan. And he cannot, not, not only can he not be trusted, but now as we revisit NATO, we see Sweden starting to no longer talk about neutrality, but talk about joining NATO. If that's going to happen, why not revisit NATO and have Turkey leave. Now, obviously, that's probably not going to happen with Turkey right next to Ukraine and not wanting to feed into the Russian penchant to try to exploit any weaknesses that European countries may show. But at the end of the day, it certainly is worth a conversation, isn't it? I've always felt that they had no business being in NATO. They don't share any of our Western values, and especially now with Erdogan oppressing the rest of the educational system in, in Turkey, the journalists, uh, journalist organizations saying that Turkey is one of the worst places to report in the planet, putting it in par with China, North Korea, Russia, and elsewhere. So watch what's happening in Sweden. The riots are the Islamist response to burning of the Quran. One episode of that. And when are we Muslims going to wake up that people cannot provoke militancy and radicalism by their free speech, their burning of a book or whatever it might be? Yes, it's our holy book and we, we just, it's, it's a central part of our faith and who we are. And yes, in history, some of the worst things began with burning scripture. But that does not legitimize violence as we now come out of Ramadan and have, I thought, been reflecting, reflecting on the right responses. We'll see what happens in Sweden, France, Germany, Britain. They're all evolving into this deeper clash of the culture and societies that their immigrants and refugees brought with them. 
in their own communities. And I think it's tougher for Europe. You know, in Europe, each of their societies is based on a language, based on race, with democracy now part of their tradition, obviously, but it's not necessarily ingrained in a national identity based in an ideology and its constitution, but rather simply based in evolution of liberal democracy, which is still couched in their German, French, Italian, Swedish tradition. So immigrants have been having a hard time anchoring to that. And I think as the Swedish prime minister talked about, they'll need to figure that out quickly or else their parallel societies will come to war. Similarly, in the United States, I think we have a leg up. We have a society which is based in immigration, which is not based in a race, which is not based in, contrary to the uh, critical race theory nonsense, uh, we don't, uh, yes, we have a, a history that uh, include included some mistakes and, and course corrections of major impact like the Civil War and Civil Rights Movement, etc. But truly, at the core of our Founding Fathers documents is a belief that all are created equal. And there are interpretations of that that can rise above any racism and all racism and bigotry and come towards equality. So much to discuss here. It's great being with all of you again this week. Thanks for giving me a little time off last week. And We'll continue to come back every week on Reform This. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.